Our scripture reading today comes from Acts 14, verses 8 to 23. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. morning. Thanks, Dan. Whoa. Well, happy Mother's Day to those of you in our midst who are mothers, and we are so thankful for you. Uh, my children make Mother's Day cards every year for their kids and uh, are for, not for their kids, <laughs> for their mom, and uh, give them to Hansoon. Uh, and this morning I was already gone when they gave them to her, but Hansoon sent me a picture of the one Daniel, my middle son, had made. And it had a picture uh, uh, of uh, all these different holidays. He drew a Christmas tree, a birthday cake, all these other things that represented different holidays. It said, happy Mother's Day. These holidays are possible because of you. And uh, that's definitely true of his birthday. I don't know about other ones, but uh, she definitely makes everything happen in our house. And I'm sure that's true of so many of the mothers here. Uh, and so we are so thankful for all of you. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Acts 14, which Dan just read. In Acts 14, we see Barnabas and Paul's first missionary journey come to an end. Their preaching of God's word uh, was met with different reactions everywhere that they went. Uh, and today we're going to focus on their time in Lystra and see what those different reactions from different people have to say about the foundational basis for human interactions and human relationships. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive right in. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that you have given it to us to help us 
Holy Spirit, we invite you now to be present here. Speak through your word. Speak to us in our hearts. Comfort those of us who are hurt. Challenge those of us who are too comfortable. And we pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us and help us to know how we might need to live differently. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our modern American culture is so polarized. In almost everything, you will find people on exact opposite sides, and they can very rarely see eye to eye, and in fact are often uh, very argumentative, even about the most simple things. And maybe it's encouraging, maybe it's discouraging, but if we look at our passage, we see that that is not a new development. That is a reality that people have had for thousands of years. In fact, since the fall, people have been polarized on opposite ends of an issue. That's what we see in our passage today. In the beginning of Acts 13, we saw how Paul and Barnabas were sent off on the first missionary journey by the church in Antioch. Last week, we saw how they were in Pisidia, Antioch, and how they proclaimed the gospel to those who were listening, and there were different reactions. In Acts 14, we see them preaching the gospel in many different cities, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and Perga. Everywhere they went, they preached God's word of salvation, and everywhere they went, there were different reactions in individuals and in the city as a whole. At the end of Acts 14, they arrive back in Antioch, and they gather the church together, and they could declare all that God had done, and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and the whole church praises God. Paul and Barnabas were sent on this missionary journey to be part of the big mission of God of bringing people to faith in God. In In this first missionary journey, we see the contrary responses to their ministry and lives, to the message of the gospel. We see rejection, we see opposition, we see adoration of them as individuals, and we see joyful acceptance of the gospel. And this points to the reality that in so many of our interactions as humans, we react in different ways to what people say and do. Um, And our reactions are often based on the motivations of our heart. Sometimes those motivations are a desire to please people, Sometimes those motivations are fear, anger, jealousy, greed, control, love. There's so many different motivations in our hearts from which we react to other individuals. And in our passage today, we're going to look at the big question of what should be the foundational basis for our interactions with other humans. What should be the foundational basis of interactions with other humans? In our passage, we see three foundational bases We see approval, we see retaliation, and we see love. We see approval, retaliation, and love. We're going to explore those a little bit. First, we see the early Christians did not preach or do ministry from a desire for approval or honor. They didn't live their lives for personal benefit or recognition. In fact, they shunned any sort of personal following or acclaim that followed their gospel ministry. In verses 8 to 10, we see a similar occurrence in Lystra that occurred in every place that they went to preach the gospel. They are preaching the gospel, and as they do it, they are also performing miraculous signs to affirm that their gospel message is from God. Paul is preaching, and a man crippled from birth is listening. He's listening so intently that Paul sees the faith on his face and tells him to stand upright. The man responds. He stands up and instantly is healed of his affliction that he's been crippled from birth. In verse 11 to 12, we see that the watching crowds are so amazed that they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods. They think Barnabas, who was most likely a little older than Paul and probably had a big white beard and was very regal looking, they think Barnabas is Zeus, 
the chief god. They think Paul, who talks the most, is Hermes, the spokesman of the gods. And they begin to be just overwhelmed in amazement and wonder. And they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas. So much so that the chief priest of Zeus comes and wants to offer sacrifices to them in worship. Barnabas and Paul see this. They see this outpouring of idolatrous worship. And it grieves them. It saddens them so that they tear their clothes and passionately speak to the crowds. No, don't do this. We're going to look at the speech at a later point, but we see that through their speech, through their actions, they barely restrain the crowd from offering a sacrifice to them. And this short interaction, it points to the sad reality that we as humans create idols out of that which makes us happy, out of that which pleases us, that which we love. We idolatrously worship it. Sometimes, too often, we love other humans in an idolatrous manner. And this isn't just true of those who are not Christians. Even as Christians, we too often fixate on individuals and worship them when we should fixate and worship our God in heaven. Uh, This is true of pastors. This is true of celebrities. This is true of so much more. We worship other humans when only God should have that place. In addition, we as humans too often respond to others with approval and adoration if they do well or do something in a manner that we personally like. Conversely, we respond with condemnation or disapproval if they do something we dislike or in a manner that we don't approve of. We don't interact with people based on the fact that they are individuals created in God's image, but rather we react to them based on their performance, based on their actions, on what they do. But that's not how we as people created in God's image and saved by Jesus should live. We should not preach the gospel or live our lives for accolades, recognition, fame. Wherever Paul and Barnabas went, it grieved them when this happened. It grieved all the early Christians when this happened. That's why in 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says, I'm so glad that I didn't baptize any of you so that none of you would say, I'm a disciple of Paul. No, I want you to be a disciple of Jesus. I want you to follow him. I want you to adore him is what Paul says. Paul, writing to the Philippians, lists uh, all these achievements and recognitions that he had as a Pharisee and says that whatever was gained to me previously is now loss. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, all those recognitions I had, the fame I had as a Pharisee of Pharisees, it's nothing compared to knowing Jesus, the one who saved me. So we should not preach God's word for personal fame or accolades. This is, in fact, contrary to the very gospel itself. And if this is true of ministry, if this is true of preaching the gospel, how much true should it be in every area of life? In every area of life, we should not be living for personal gain, approval, or recognition or our own benefit in every area of life. When I was first going to China as a missionary, I attended a training right out of college, and there was a Nigerian brother there from Africa who was actually a missionary in Asia, and he was there doing the training, and he shared what he liked to call the story of the donkey, and this story has always stuck with me. It goes like this. Once there was a young donkey that was minding its own business in the yard where it grew up, And men men came and took it and put a saddle on its back and took it out of the yard. And they put another man on his back and began to lead him down the road into a city. And as they led him down the way, more and more people gathered on the sides of the road. And as they gathered, they began to cheer and shout praises 
And there were so many of them. And as they did that, the donkey began to think, wow, I am such a fine donkey. Look at all these people who have gathered to see me. And as he kept going, they began to put their coats on the road in front of him so that he could walk on them. He said, wow, I just might be the greatest donkey that has ever lived. What this donkey didn't realize was that the king of kings, the creator of the universe, was sitting on his back. And that's why the people were cheering and praising, because Jesus had come, not because this amazing donkey had come. Too often we are like the donkey, thinking that all the praise and honor that we're receiving or that's being said around us is because of us and something special in us. Too often we don't think like John the Baptist, who when the crowds and even his own disciples left from following him to go after Jesus, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. His followers left him, and he was happy about it because they had come to know Jesus. Do we think too much of ourselves like the donkey? Sadly, I know I do too often. The foundational basis for our life can never be seeking the approval and praise of others. First, because, quite frankly, we don't deserve the ultimate praise. We don't deserve people's praise too often. And anything that we do that is praiseworthy is so often a gift from the Lord. Second, because if we make approval and praise of others the foundational basis which influences our interactions and motivates us, then we will constantly be dissatisfied and longing for more. We will be constantly dissatisfied and longing for more. Why? Because people's approval and praise is like dust in the wind. It's blown every which way. One day, people will be singing your praises, saying, man, that guy's awesome. The next day, they will not be able to stand you. It's like the dust in the wind, blown every which way. We cannot rely on it. It cannot be the foundational basis for which we interact with other people. Maybe you are different. Maybe you think too little of yourself. Maybe you judge yourself too harshly because you've never been complimented or praised, and you feel that you will never measure up. In, the, in truth, the reality is that in Jesus Christ, if you have had faith and trust in him, believed in him as your savior, then you are loved and approved of, not because of what you have done, but because Jesus has set your, his eyes on you and saved you. In Jesus Christ, we have Christ's perfect life. His perfect life is ours, and God views us as his beloved daughters and sons. And there's nothing we can do to make him love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. It is ours by faith, and God looks at you and is pleased. That is the controlling reality of how we need to think of ourselves. That cannot be taken away. And because that is already ours, we turn away from sin and pursue a right life. I'm not saying that we should not encourage others or compliment them. We should. But I'm saying that we as individuals need to examine our own hearts and lives and see, am I, the reason why I'm doing this is to seek other people's approval, or am I doing this because it is the right thing to do and God would be pleased that I'm living in this way? This has implications for how we also approach our interactions and our relationships with others, with other individuals. Are your relationships with people contingent on their performance, or is it contingent on the fact that they are created in God's image and of value, inherent value and worth. This has impacts on our relationships as spouses. It has impact on our relationship as parents, as co-workers, as bosses, as employees. It has an impact on everything. 
The Bible clearly teaches that all humanity is created in God's image, and because of that, are inherently valuable and precious. It doesn't say anything about, if you do this, then you are a person worthy of value and respect. No. Too often, we interact with people based on their performance and think if they do well, then they're valuable or worthy of my respect. That is as far from the truth as possible. The second thing we observe about the early Christians is that they did not live lives of retaliation and revenge. They did not delight that those who do not know the Lord would be judged for their sin and rebellion against God. Throughout their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas received mixed responses to the gospel and their lives wherever they went, rejection or rejoicing. And our passage is no different. In Acts 14.1, they go to Iconium, a city, and they preach the gospel to a great number of both Jews and Greeks alike. And in verse 2, we see that the unbelieving Jews, angered by the message, stir up the Gentiles and poison their minds against Barnabas and Paul. But Barnabas and Paul remained in Iconium, continuing to preach the gospel, continuing to teach those who had believed, boldly speaking the message of the gospel and doing powerful signs. The Iconium Jews and Greeks, however, they persist in their rejection of the gospel and they band together to fight Barnabas and Paul. So that in verse 5 we read that an attempt is going to be made by both Gentiles and Jews working together to mistreat them and stone them. Paul and Barnabas become aware of this and they flee to Lystra and Derbe, a nearby city. That's where the, uh, the miraculous healing occurred and the crowds wanted to worship them. But the Jews of Antioch and Iconium and the Gentiles of Antioch and Iconium don't let it go. They pursue them all the way to Lystra and Derbe. And we read in verse 19 that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. The Jews and Greeks of the area saw the message of the gospel and they were threatened by it. Their way of life, their authority was threatened. So they retaliated in anger and violent opposition against Paul and Barnabas. The basis for their interactions was revenge, was fear. As we share the gospel and live our distinctly Christian lives, people will oppose and reject it, sometimes violently, whether in violent words or in violent actions. If anyone had a reason to see people's opposition and want to gleefully preach the gospel, uh, gleefully preach God's word in a spirit of revenge or delight that the hearers would be judged by God, it was Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists off all that he's suffered at the hands of the Jews. He says that with far greater labors, far more imprisons, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. He goes on to list the journeys, the danger, the imprisonments that he suffered, all at the hands of his fellow Jews. If anybody should have been angered and had a spirit of revenge, it was Paul. But Paul's heart was not filled with anger and a desire to see them pay for what they had done. Rather, his heart was grieved, grieved that his people would be judged for their rejection of the Messiah the rejection of God. And so in Romans 9, he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to flesh. Paul was grieved that his people did not know God, did not know Jesus the Savior. 
We do not share the gospel in vengeful delight that sinners will be judged, as if to say, see, this is what's waiting for you. And if in proclaiming the gospel and in ministry we should not be motivated by revenge, then how much more so in all of life should revenge have nothing to do with how we interact with others? When I was a student at James Madison University, one day I was coming out of the dining hall and I came to the common area and there's a big hill. There's a huge crowd waiting there and there's a man dressed in a suit with a Bible in one hand standing on top of the hill looking down at the crowd and he gathered quite the crowd, probably close to 100 people. And as he talked, he was pointing at people in the crowds, is saying these hateful things to people saying that he was a Christian. He was saying, you, you were probably out partying last night, drinking a whole bunch, but you're going to be going to hell, burning forever. He's pointing to a girl and said, you, you were probably sleeping around last week and you're going to be in hell too. And as he preached his message and pointing to people, he pointed to me, pointed right at me, said, you with your orange spiky hair, because I used to have orange spiky hair in college. Uh, he said, you, you're going to go to hell because you're some punk rocker. I'm like, okay. You're going to hell. He had no idea who I was. The fact that I was a Christian, that I loved God. He was preaching a message of revenge, retaliation, anger, hate. I don't know why, even though I waited until the crowd left and had a conversation with him. I have no idea still why he did that. This man took delight in condemning sinners around him. And this is exactly what we saw this past summer when we looked at the book of Jonah. This is what Jonah did. Jonah saw God's great mercy on Nineveh, and it didn't please him. It made him angry because he didn't want the Ninevites to receive God's mercy. He wanted them to be paid back for the harm they had inflicted upon his people. We too often interact with others in a retaliatory and vengeful manner. Others wrong us, and we want them to wrong them in turn, but this should never be the basis of our interaction and our relationships with others. We need to examine our hearts and our motives when someone sins against us or unintentionally harms us, is our response to pay them back? To think how we can get them and theirs? To get them what they deserve? Too often we interact with others from a place of arrogance and pride, thinking we are better than them, that we can teach them the right way to live, to show them how wrong they are in the way they live and how they interact with us. But that's not how we who claim the name of Christ should live. It's not easy. It's very difficult to not do that. Extending mercy, grace, forgiveness to others is costly. I'm not going to deny that. It's incredibly costly. Tim Keller had a recent article that he wrote called The Fading of Forgiveness. Really, I encourage you to check it out and read it. In it, he says, forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering. It's a form of voluntary suffering that brings about a greater good. When you are wronged, the perpetrator owes you it may be literal and financial, but in any case, he or she has wrongfully robbed you of some good, whether reputation or relationship or health or something else. To forgive is to deny oneself revenge. Let me say that again. To forgive is to de deny oneself revenge. It is a com commitment to not try to exact repayment from the uh, offender by inflicting on them the things they did to you. Therefore, forgiveness is always costly to the forgiver. To forgive other people is costly because you take it upon yourself. You take the hurt and you don't give it back to them. It's costly. It's difficult. Revenge is easy. Forgiveness is difficult. 
Finally, we see that Paul and Barnabas' motivation for their missional life is that of love. This motivation finds its root in the heart of God, one of love and grace, merciful care for his creation. That's what we heard in the confession of sin and assurance of pardon that we did. Taken from Exodus 34, the foundational passage of the entire Old Testament which reveals God's character to Moses and the Israelites. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That is who our God is. And that should be our foundational basis for interacting with other people. In Lystra, when the watching crowds see Paul miraculously heal that crippled man, they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas. And this grieves them, so they tear their clothes, and Paul gives a short but passionate speech. In it, he says, first, he reminds them that, hey, we're men just like you, but men with an amazing message, the good news that you should turn away from the vain idols of this world and turn to the living God, a living God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, Paul says. Paul roots his plea for them to turn from idolatry in the reality that God is their creator, their maker. But he goes further than that. He just doesn't tell them that, hey, God created you, so you should worship him. No, he says, God created you, and you have turned from him, but God has still been good to you. Look in verse 16 to 17. Paul tells them that God has borne witness to himself, to the entire world, by his goodness and care. He says, for God did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. Paul explains to them the concept of common grace, the fact that God is good even to his enemies. God doesn't wipe out the entire earth, but he continues to provide for his creation, even those who stubbornly refuse to believe in him. God is abundantly good. And we know from the speech of Act, in Acts 13 which Harrison preached on last week, that everywhere Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journeys, they preached the key gospel message that Jesus Christ died and was raised to new life so that everyone who believes in him can have forgiveness of sins and be freed from sin and the law. And they preached this gospel message here. That's what the crippled man heard and was healed as he believed. Everywhere they went, they proclaimed this gospel message. And they even continued to proclaim it after the violent opposition of the Jews and Greeks of Iconium. We see that Paul is practically stoned to death. Some commentators think that he was dead and that God miraculously brought him back to life. But Paul rises up. He continues in love to preach and teach in Iconium, Antioch, Lystra, Derbe, the very place where the people who stoned him and left him for dead still live. He didn't just go on to another place. He stayed in that area, continuing to preach with most likely some of those individuals in the crowds watching him, the people who had stoned him and left him for dead. He wasn't paying them back, but continuing through his proclamation of the gospel to plead that they might turn and repent. In verse 21 to 23, we see that. It says, they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith and save, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They went back to all the new Christians and the watching crowds and built them up in their faith and continued to preach the gospel to them because they were motivated by love. In all of life, we are to interact with others due to our great love for them. This is what Jesus taught his disciples when he was on earth. In Luke 6, as he's teaching his disciples, he says, If you love those who love you, 
what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those with whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. So we see, finally, the true foundational basis of our interactions with all other people should be love, a love rooted in God's heart for the world, a heart of mercy, compassion. It's the big idea, what we see in our passage is that we live amongst others in a gentle, caring, gracious, merciful, loving manner, because that is how God has treated us. Kim Jun-gon was the founder of Korean Campus Crusade for Christ. Kim lived through the Korean War. North Korean communists invaded the South and nearly conquered the entire country. It's a fascinating history. There's only a small area around Busan that was not conquered. And when the communists invaded, they came to the island where Kim lived with his father and his wife, and they killed hundreds on the island. They came to Kim's village, and they dragged Kim, who was a a doctor, out of his house along with his father and wife. They beat him to within an inch of his life and killed his father and his wife in front of him. He was only saved when suddenly a band of American soldiers and South Korean army came to the island and the communists fleed to the mountains. Some of the communists were captured. And because it was the middle of the war, the chief of police had the authority to execute anyone without a trial. But Kim pleaded with the chief. He said, no, spare them, please. These men were forced to kill. The police chief was shocked. He said, these people killed your family. Why do you now want to spare their lives? Kim replied, because the Lord Jesus, whom I belong to and whom I serve, has shown me great mercy, and so I should show them mercy. The communists were spared execution because of Kim's plea, and news of what he had done spread throughout the island, and Kim climbed the mountain where the communists were hiding out. He climbed and found their camp, and They did not kill him. They welcomed him to his camp. And he preached the gospel to them and lived there with them. And a great many of those communists became Christians. And when he left the island years later to found Campus Crusade for Christ in Seoul, he left a flourishing church of over 100 former communists who are now Christians. Kim's words echo the point of our passage. We belong to the Lord Jesus. And because he has shown us mercy, we in turn should show mercy and love to all that we interact with in every part of our lives. When others respond to us from a basis of people-pleasing, retaliation, fear, anger, jealousy, greed, we should interact with them from a basis of love, a love rooted in God's heart and in God's power. How can we cultivate a foundation of love in our relationships? What do we do? First, we need to soak in God's heart of love for us in the world. Where do we find that? We find that in his word. We find that in his description and explanation of his great love for us shown forth in Jesus Christ. We read it, we study it, we meditate on it so that it becomes part of how we think every single day. Second, we need to constantly remind ourselves through prayer, self-examination, that everybody we interact with 
is created in God's image and has inherent value and worth simply because they are a person created in God's image, not because of what they do or their performance. And third, we examine our interactions. And most likely, we will need to confess and repent to both God and others that we have fallen short and again and again sinfully interact with people from a basis of anger, fear, approval, people-pleasing, so many other wrong sinful motivations. We need to confess and repent of that to God and to others. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to live in a different manner. Tim Keller reminded us that forgiveness is costly. It's costly to us because we give up revenge and we take the hurt that has been inflicted on us onto ourselves. But the amazing truth is that in Jesus Christ, each one of us who has faith has been forgiven of our great, our great, great horrific debt of sin and wrong. Wrongdoing that we have done against God and against others. Wrongdoing that we did not have to pay but Jesus paid for us. Jesus took that costly forgiveness upon himself so that we in turn can turn to others and forgive them. We have been forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God by Jesus's costly death. We already have that grace and mercy and forgiveness extended to us. How can we not in turn turn to others and extend mercy, forgiveness, and grace to them? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you so incredibly thankful that you have poured out your steadfast love, your mercy, your grace upon us. We have offended you, sinned against you, sinned against others, but you have not treated us as we deserve, but instead you have extended rich mercy and grace to us. Thank you so much, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus, that in you we have been saved, restored, redeemed, Thank you that we can turn away from sin now and through the power of your Holy Spirit live in a manner that is pleasing to you, loving our neighbors as ourselves, loving even our enemies as ourselves. This is not easy. It's incredibly difficult, Lord. It's costly. But we thank you that, Jesus, you bore the cost already of our sins, of others' sins, so we don't need to retaliate and seek revenge, but instead we can live in love towards others. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.